Now I'm going to introduce Dave Peterson, who is going to be teaching this evening. You've already seen him up here making twists on the communion. What he also does is create things with a chainsaw. One of his spare time, pastime, recreational hobbies, I have read on their church website. He is pastor of Vineyard, sorry, Fountain Vineyard Christian Fellowship in Port Elizabeth in South Africa. And he is passionate about mission. He is passionate about safari in Africa. He is passionate about raising young leaders. He is passionate about healthy church and healthy spirituality. And we are really excited to hear him tonight and to welcome him here as a returning speaker and guest at this camp. Welcome, Dave. Thanks so much. I don't know about all the twists, I said something else. <laughs> Have you ever said a dumb thing in your life? Hey? <laughs> I, I just want to check with you. Uh, Fleming wrote what I'm going to preach on tonight, and I just want to make sure that he's not playing a joke on me. This is in Danish. Can someone read it for me? Who reads Danes? So I try and read it. The only Dan- Danish I know is Jaelskadai. Is that right? Is that how I said? I keep telling Fleming and he says, no man, you're embarrassing me. But uh, uh, we're going to talk about uh, resilience tonight. Upholden uh, Haid. Is that right? Is that right, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't get <laughs> That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. But... Um, just before we jump into that, uh, I want to say I'm so glad that God made us all different, aren't you? Tell your neighbor, I'm glad that you are unique. We're I want to say to Mike Polavachi especially, Mike, when God made you, he threw, uh, the, threw away the mold and said, I'll never do that again. That's how unique you are, Mike. We love you. Appreciate you, and we are not comparisons with one another, hey? We are especially unique, each of us. But we do say dumb things sometimes. I've, I've said some really dumb things in my life. I mean, in fact, tonight, walking in here, I saw a guy, a young guy, I won't name him, that I know, and he had this beautiful girl with him. So I said, oh, is this your wife? He said, no, 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 no. I realized he was a bit embarrassed. I said, oh, you must be at least going out. He says, no, we're going in. So I said, oh, you're not going out. So me <laughs> John, where are you? <laughs> anyway, and my wife at that point jumped in as she often does and rescues me and says, no, forgive him. He uh, doesn't always know what he's saying. So, so this man said to his wife one, one day, uh, I don't know how you can be so stupid and so beautiful all at the same time. The wife responded, allow me to explain. God made me beautiful so you'd be attracted to me. God made me stupid, so I'd be attracted to you. <laughs> May the Lord help us tonight. If you've got your Bibles here, yeah, we're going to look at the life of Joseph for a, a couple of minutes. 
and uh, we're going to look especially at uh, the tests and the tools of Joseph's resilience and see what we can learn from that for our lives. In South Africa, in our military context, we have a word, in, it's in Afrikaans, uh, it says fastbait. I don't know if you'd have a similar word, yeah, it's like endure, bite tight, uh, hold on, don't give up. Eh? Uh, and uh, we're talking about a character, characteristic in our lives that causes us to not give in. We're going to keep, keep on keeping on. It's something we're totally committed to doing, and we, are, we have no intention of throwing in the towel. Jesus says, those who overcome will be granted, and then he mentions various privileges pertaining to our heavenly future. So there's a strong call in Scripture for us to be overcomers and uh, people that go the distance. So in Joseph's story from Genesis, if we pick up um, from Genesis 37 right through to the end of the first book of the Bible to Genesis 50, we'll see um, time and again uh, aspects of Joseph's life being brought to the fore for us to, to look at and to enjoy. There's so many lessons in his life. And the reason I believe God wants us to, to look at this as I prayed about coming and sharing with you uh, at this camp is I'm, a, I'm so aware how, how, how one of the most common uh, illnesses we contend with in our age, in our, day, in, our, in our stage of life, and in our context in which many of us are living. And I think it's been true of many uh, friends in the Nordic areas of the phenomenon of burnout. Anyone been burnt out or know someone has been burnt out, you know? And uh, we need to be equipped to help each other overcome burnout. So Joseph was this, this youngster that dreamed. He was a dreamer. He was deeply loved by his dad. He was the, the 11th son of, of, of Jacob. And uh, his father loved on him, made him that special Technicolor dream coat. And, uh, and um, Joseph, in the context of being deeply loved, became a dreamer, and he had this amazing gift of dreaming and of interpreting dreams and being excited about dreams, and uh, his father kept him very close, sent the, the other boys out into the fields, and, and they would go and do the work, and uh, Joseph would stay close. At the age of 17, his father sent him one day to just take some, some uh, provisions to his brothers and go and find out what's going on with the sheep, and... Um, when the brothers saw Joseph coming along, the first of his tests arrived. But you can imagine the animosity, the jealousy, the, uh, the comparison factors that were pushing up with a lot of pain in that, in that family. And Joseph uh, experienced the first of his three tests, the test of adversity. And the deepest adversity we can ever experience is the adversity that comes by rejection. When you find yourself to be in a rejected position. When you, you loved on the one hand and rejected by others, and you only intended good. I mean, the dreams he had, uh, ultimately, although they put him ahead of his brothers, they were for the good of all. And his brothers hated the fact that he always dreamed about himself being the one on top. And you can imagine the sibling rivalry that they contended with. And you know, as we looked at that adversity that kept coming up, some of it from his own foolishness, like in our lives sometimes, Sometimes we have adversity because we've just been stupid. We've made some dumb decisions, uh, some actions we've taken, uh, and we've grappled with aspects of, of adversity, things that have come against us. We don't know what to do with it. Um, 
And uh, sometimes we're at the end of our tether. We just really don't know. I remember leading a young guy when I was a, a, a teenager, become a believer. And I led a, a young guy in, a, in, in the school to the Lord and he accepted Jesus. And he came from a family where he experienced uh, tremendous emphasis on perfectionism. It was a very driven family, very high achieving family. His name was Clive. And he was the second child in this family of three sons. And um, about a month after he accepted Christ, uh, our family moved to Cape Town. And that was a long way away, so I lost contact with him. But about two months later, I got the message to say that he'd committed suicide. And he left a note to say the pain of being rejected and having no one to talk to since, and he, and he mentioned me in his note. I can't live with this adversity. And he killed himself. And I've never forgotten the, the depth of anguish that comes from a sense of aloneness that I saw in that context of my friend, just not managing to, to keep going. And the, ad- the adversity pushed up in a, in a test for him that he, he never passed. May God help us to be people who find a better way to deal with adversities, even if they are the most painful rejections. And that's why we had the little twist with the communion. We want to always be there for one another. Hey? We're not alone. God has put us together in uh, companionship in this, uh, in this life. It's, um, it's a very important part of our, of our life together is to realize that we, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And that's certainly in the context of marriage. But in the context of our, our humanity, no man is an island. We're meant to be doing life in connection with each other. Winston Churchill's one of his, one of his sayings was, um, getting my wife to marry me was my biggest achievement. <laughs> that interesting. Without her, he said, it would have been impossible for me to get through all that I've gotten through without losing my courage. This is not a talk just to advocate for marriage, but it is to advocate for us doing life better together. And we need to discover in the life of Joseph the, the, how to, what the tests are and how to beat them. If you take an overview of the book of Joseph and of his life, there are at least four things that stand out immediately. Uh, it encourages us not to give up even after a bad start or not to give up when others don't support us and not to give up when life is full of surprises um, or not to give up when life takes some obscure, mysterious turns and you've got to cope with that. But the adversity, especially of rejection that he experienced, and then it went on because his brothers uh, put him in a pit, they were going to kill him, then they sold him, thought they'd make some money out of him, and he went on into one level of adversity to another and to false accusation, being forgotten in prison, uh, and uh, spending eventually 23 years from the age of 17 to 40 uh, away from his family, living in a place which uh, ultimately God was good to him. We'll talk about that in a moment. But a place that carried many, many adversities um, that we need to be reminded of. The second thing I want to say in terms of a test, you, you'll remember the story. how uh, He came to a point in his life where uh, he began to get some prominence, having been bought by Potiphar and brought into his house and became, was a very handsome young man. And uh, he, Mrs. Potiphar took a liking to him. She obviously didn't get enough time with her, her businessman husband, so she, she fell for this head servant that Joseph had become. And uh, she tried to get him to sleep 
with her and he refused. He was afraid of both Potiphar and of God, he said, and he wasn't going to do this. And so the second test was presented to him, the test of opportunity, the test of temptation. When you think I'm entitled to some relief, I'm entitled to some pleasure along the way. Uh, David Wilkerson used to say, one night of stolen pleasure is not worth a lifetime of regret. But in that moment, eh, in that moment, you think, hey, I've got to have some relief. And the, pres- the opportunities that are presented become huge temptation. And that's the second test. But here's the thing. If you're going to move on in leadership, you, you cannot be trusted until you've been tested. Testing comes before trusting. And, and that's why we encourage never to point young uh, people that have never been um, tested at the appropriate levels to positions of authority beyond their capacity to carry it with a character that has been established. And the temptation might be not just sexual and illicit relationships, but it might be workaholism. It's one of the temptations of our age and of our, of our Western cultures. Performance orientation, driving hard. And uh, I must say, Fleming, uh, uh, Fleming decided to, to coach me on safer driving. I don't know if you know that. He's, uh, he's decided uh, he's going to teach me to drive more safely than he's seen me drive. <laughs> And I appreciate his mentorship. He showed me the other day how, how slow you're supposed to go in these streets. Uh, so we're never going to get there. But uh, I love this man. He drives like an absolute hillbilly. Uh, so opportunity is the second area of testing that Joseph had to endure. Um, and if we don't deal with the opportunities, the temptations that come our way well, we find ourselves falling this way and that way. There's a church amongst a particular people group that are very insecure in themselves and, and uh, their go-to for help is alcohol and, uh, and alcohol leads them to other fallen behaviors. And so I say this half jokingly, but it's actually quite tragic. In this particular church amongst this group, uh, about 150 kilometers north of Kabecha, our city, uh, on, in a farming area, we have, to, we have a, a team of four pastors because at any given time, could be up to two or three of them that are in a fallen state. So you've got to take turns to stand and lead. That's how, how weak and fragile the leadership actually is. So we're contending with some very serious onslaughts on, in the area of temptation. But burnout comes to us oftentimes because we've yielded um, in our vulnerability to temptation. Uh, and it comes up in frustration, in depression, in uh, all forms of, of uh, of uh, sensuality, um, places where we've, we've experienced bitterness and we feel like I'm entitled to some uh, sense of, of self-stroking and opportunism will come our way and will be a, another major test for us. We will need to know that we've got the, the character, the content and the charisma to survive and go through and come out the other side stronger. Uh, one, of the, one of the big issues in, in, this, uh, in this time is... Um, to know our worth and our identity, if you know who you are. And that's what helped Joseph. He said, I know I belong to God, and I don't want to offend him. And that's ultimately why I will not lie with you, he said to Mrs. Potiphar. Like to think of an old woman who said to a, a certain man at, at dinner, would you sleep with me for a million kroner? He said, okay. Then she said, will you do it for 50 kroner? What kind of man do you think I am? He said to her. Already, he, she said, I know, already know what kind of man you are. I'm just trying to settle the price. What price would you have on your pursuit of Christ-likeness, 
on purity? What would cause you to sell out your soul? What would cause you to capitulate in, in some level of, of uh, yielding to the temptation? So that's the second test. The third test is a test of abundance, of prosperity. When you've come through adversity and you've come through your temptations and you're now in a place like Joseph was after all those years. Remember, he'd been thrown into prison and he'd helped uh, the, the, the cupbearer and uh, the baker uh, with dreams, interpreted them, and they both came true. The baker was taken off and killed. The cupbearer was given the place of, of prominence again, and, uh, and, for, and they forgot him. He was forgotten for another two years. And so in that, in that waiting, in that longing, he finally was remembered and uh, was brought before um, uh, Pharaoh and was able to help Pharaoh with his bigger dream, tell him what the dream was, interpret it for him, and, uh, and gain prominence. Now, here's the thing. Uh, abundance, prosperity, prominence can also be a real test because would you use it for self-gratification or would you use it in a way that really blesses others? Colleen and I, when we are involved in the healing ministries, we often realize that someone is not truly healed when they've just reached a place of, of feel good about themselves. Their healing is only completed when they become a, a healer towards others. When you can turn your uh, uh, importunity into an opportunity to help another. If you've been through whatever crisis and you've learned grace, you received grace in that crisis, and you, can, uh, and you can turn that over into help for others, your healing is coming full circle. Whatever it might have been, whether it's a, a retrenchment from a, a job position, whether you've had a, a family crisis that's gone on, you've been through a divorce, um, you've had false accusation, you maybe had prison time, whatever issue you might have had, you've had uh, uh, corruption happening in your city or in your, na in your nation, and stuff you've had to contend with, false accusations that have come at you, all the kind of things that came at Joseph. And you've, you've found God's enablement in that time. You only pass the test when you're able to turn it to the good of others. When you keep it to yourself, you don't do well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, and if you, I think I'm going to put that up on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says in verse 1 and 2, As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Don't waste the grace. If you've had grace through a crisis you've come through and you've become better and not bitter through what you've suffered and the grace to learn to stand taller because of what you've been through, uh, become what... John Wimber says we must seek for all our leadership, uh, that God wants uh, to delight in those who are uh, uh, limping leaders. We've, like Jacob, we've, we've wrestled with God. We found his blessing, and we limp as a result. But, hey, because of that, we've become more trustworthy. And uh, uh, we've turned our limp for the help of others. And we've used our abundance well instead of just sitting back in smugness and self-sufficiency. So th those are the three tests of Joseph's life, and they're probably true of many of our lives. Adversity that comes at us, eh? uh, temptations that we are having to contend with, and some temptations are tailor-made just for you, and only you know what they are. Uh, and uh, it may be a substance, it may be a person, it may be a, a pattern of life, it may be a way of living, but it's a temptation. And then the, the third test is the test of abundance. 
will you keep what you've got to yourself? And I, I want to say to you, I think that's a very, very real test for a church and cluster of churches that's been called to, uh, to be a Joseph people, to have what you have for others. Because ultimately, the outcome of Joseph's gifting was to be of service to the whole of the civilized world at that time. So let's move to the tools that helped Joseph uh, obtain victory in this time of growing in resilience. And they'll be, be tools that help you and help me as well. They've helped me in times past and ongoingly are helpful to us. And the first tool was this overwhelming sense that Joseph had that he was loved, powerfully, inexplicably, deeply loved, so deeply loved that he, he dared to dream. And when we know the favor of God on our lives, and many times we don't because we've not had that favor in our growing formative years. But when we've met the Lord and He starts to reveal His Father heart to us, okay, in that revelation, we start to come into place of healing. And Joseph's number one tool that helped him uh, be resilient was he was convinced that he was loved. And you read that again and again, Genesis 38, 39, time and again it says, and God's God loved him, God favored him, and everything he did, he succeeded in. God, God's favor led him to believe constantly and lean into a sense of, I'll overcome, I'll be victorious. It'll turn out right in the end. The overwhelming sense of the presence, the favorable presence of God. So I love the way we worship you. Huh? I must say, walking in here on the first night and just, I feel like you're all a bunch of country people. Huh? It feels to me, huh? just walking in and just the, there's a gentle flow in the way we worship and there's a sway and there's an engagement with it. It's just a, a wonderful sense of uh, authenticity as we grapple with the presence of God. And um, the favorable presence of God is the number one tool that will help you and me in our resilience. And one of the places we find that is in worship. In, he inhabits the praises of His people. So we, we find His presence in worship. So it's, that's not an exaggeration. It's not a, a religious formula to say, Lord, we welcome Your presence. He's here. He's in this house. And as we worship Him, He wants to make His presence manifest and revealed to us. And that helps us. How many of you have not been helped just in the worship before any of us to sit up to preach, eh? He speaks to us. Eh? He, he, I had a friend who served with me in Fountain Vineyard years ago. He used to describe the, the work of the Spirit in our lives as being hugged by God. You ever had that feeling of being hugged by God? Eh? And uh, that, that uh, favorable presence of God embracing you. I remember doing a youth camp many years ago, and uh, we went on a hike up a mountain. And uh, I sent the, the, the kids all down the mountain after, the, uh, after a while up on top. And I just decided to stay there for a while. And I, I, just, so, I just entered, I don't often talk about this, but I, I entered into such an overwhelming, I guess I need to say ecstatic experience of his, of his presence. I remember praying, Lord, you better dial it down now or take me home, like Enoch, you know. And there are those moments when it's ecstatic, but there are other moments when it's just serene. It's, it's a peace that passes all understanding, that just grips you. Hey? I've got a prayer cave that I go to uh, out on the, the beach uh, near where I stay. And uh, I've had some lovely moments here of just engaging God's presence and talking over with Him some of the things that I'm, I'm wrestling with and contending with. And always, always there's that sense, it's been good to just be with you, Father. Just to be with you, just to tell you about it. So that's the second, the first tool is the, the, the enjoyment of His favorable presence. And knowing that you can come to His presence easily, it's, a, it's an invitation for all of us. It's not hard to find His presence, eh? 
Let's just look at um, uh, Psalm 139, verse 7 to 10. Where can I go from your, from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. The overwhelming omniscience of God and His presence. Eh? That's just the, the first thing we need to tuck into our, our toolbox of, of, of a resilient character, being able to go the distance, never give up on the enjoyment of God's presence. John Wesley and I came from a, a Methodist background. Uh, my first nine years before the 38 years in, in, in Fountain Vineyard, the first nine years was in Methodism. And I'll never, never forget the final words I was taught from the history books that, of John Wesley's uh, on his deathbed. He said, the best of all is God is with us. And then he took his last breath. What, a, what an overwhelming conviction to hold on to with your last breath, eh? His presence. And of course, that ushers us into that unbroken experience of His presence, eh? His presence is, is uh, in heaven uh, is, 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 is all together there. We, we know Him. Uh, we don't need the sun or the moon anymore. His presence is, is the light that, that we need. Uh, it's overwhelming. That's number one. Number two in Joseph's life, and it's a tool for you and me also, was this, this man right through from his teenage years at 17 right through to 40 was a man that was persistent in the usage of his gift. He never gave up on his gift of, of dreaming and interpreting dreams. He stuck to that. He used it whether he was free as a teenager, whether he was thrown into prison, whether he was brought before the Pharaoh of the day. But he, he persisted in the exercise, the faithful exercise of his gift. And when the Lord returns, will he find you and me faithful in exercise of our gifts? We can be resilient if we just keep doing God, what God has gifted and called us to do. When he comes, let's not be like those who are uh, the foolish virgins who didn't have the oil and weren't exercising their, their purpose uh, and uh, were embarrassed at the moment of the return of the bridegroom. Uh, so there's this call for us to be persistent in our gift usage, not giving up on it, not, uh, not capitulating to our despairs and to our distractions. And we can so easily get distracted, eh? So easy to get distracted. I remember one of the things, and I'll just speak to you as vineyard people, uh, it was a difficult time in the 90s when the Toronto blessing came through from Canada. You guys remember that? And what a wonderful time it was on the one hand, uh, but wild on the other hand. How many can remember around those times in the 90s? Huh? Do you remember that? Some of that laughter, tears, barking, all sorts of running anointings, all sorts of things. I remember one meeting rolling from one side of the room to the other for two hours just laughing, not being able to stop, just overwhelming sense of God in the house. And, and the church awakening to a, a sense of God and an emotional response and an awareness of, of an experiential grasp of Him. But here's the thing that John Wimber saw that, that struck me. Um, and I remember having conversations in Vida. Ask him to explain why he took the position he did when he removed the name Vineyard from Toronto, what was the Toronto Airport Vineyard at the time. And he said, in no way am I against the move of the Spirit, which is what many interpreted the action to mean. He was actually saying, I'm absolutely for that. In fact, so for that, I don't want us to be distracted by the phenomenal. We don't want people to gather to have an experience of the phenomenal. We want to have people come for Jesus and for the experience of the Spirit. If it results in some phenomenal, good and well. 
I mean, if I was going to give you a gift tonight and I wrapped it up in some kind of newspaper, but it was maybe a gold chain or something, or Mike, if it was a slab of chocolate, you know, uh, but it was wrapped in newspaper, uh, would you reject it or, or watch it? Sometimes people will just take the wrapping and make the wrapping the real deal and forget about the substance of the gift. And, and Wimber was telling us it's the substance of the gift that really counts. So the persistence of, of our engaging of the Holy Spirit and what He's doing in our lives is, is, is of paramount importance. And we should never allow ourselves to be distracted by the secondary things. And that's not just... Not by any manner of means to say it's wrong to be laughing and falling and being drunk. Not at all. That's, just not the real, that's not just the main thing. The thing is what's happening on the inside. The thing is our encounter with God. Lest we become faddish. You guys get fads up here in the Nordic countries? Yo-yo seasons and stamp collecting seasons. I don't know what, what kind of fads you have out here. I don't know what they are. But uh, sometimes you can get caught up with the fads and miss, miss the real deal, hey? Uh, the things that really count. So we, we need to be persistent uh, in our pursuit of God, His Spirit's enabling, and all that that means in our lives. The third tool that will help us in our, in our resilience is our commitment to the process of becoming whole and not accepting an immaturity, a, an unresolved issue, not accepting a fallenness in our lives that that remains tainted with depravity. And we see that in Joseph, you know, in, uh, in, in, in uh, Genesis 45, uh, he says to, to his brothers, um, you know, you intended to harm me, but God intended good. As he was processing with his brothers when they finally were, dis- uh, were disclosed to him and him to them, that uh, he was the one that was providing for for this in this time of famine because of the faithfulness of his gifting he could now provide um, after the seven years of, of fat he could provide in the seven years of lean and uh, and his brothers were were, were, were uh, presenting confusions to him and he said no no I remember this I've processed this in my soul on one hand it's not about you just intending to harm me it's actually about God wanting to use a strange way to bring about good and that speaks to me of Joseph getting a handle on the trauma of his life and finding meaning in it. It's man's search for meaning. And when you have a why, you can endure any how, said Viktor Frankl. Huh? If, you have a, if you have a why, you can endure any how. We need to have a purpose to live for. We need to have meaning that, that draws us on and moves us forward. Viktor Frankl said we actually need a cause to live for. We need to have a sense of the significance of others that surround our lives, that give it meaning. He said we also need to find significance in our suffering. Don't suffer in vain. And we need to have a sense of significance and depth in our spirituality. And these things help us to process a soul growth and restoration at a level that makes us whole again. So important for us to lean into that. And when we do that, we develop a resilience that um, makes us better people. Resilience brings about a kindness on our lives. Uh, somebody said that being generally nice, uh, thoughtful, and kind, resilient people are healthier, live longer, feel better connected with others, have more self-esteem and more energy. You know, I was reading a story on resilience about uh, what happens in, in Holland and how uh, 
There's so much burnout and sick, uh, sick days taken off uh, by people in different work situations. But the, the, the category of employment where they have the least sick days is amongst the farming community. And they put that down to a few factors. Uh, one of them primarily is uh, that they're able to make their own decisions and they're living in nature. And they, they're working longer hours than the average city worker would be, but, but there's an engagement with that and a sense of rhythm to it. Uh, and they get a lot of exercise while they do it. So there's a lot of good values in all that. And those things help us in our resilience. So we're not talking about resilience purely as a, a spiritual thing. We need to eat right, sleep right. Uh, we need to relate well. We need to have the right exercise. These things all feed into it because we are, uh, we are a composite whole. We need to live holistically balanced. It helps us to, to go the distance. Um, you need to live, we all need to learn to live sabbatically, taking those breaks, eh? where we are able to uh, draw aside for a while and catch our breath, and that's what God wanted for His, for his, um, his people all along. He wanted us to have a, a sense of, of balance to our lives so we can go the distance. So I want to draw two together tonight and say, I really feel like God wants to um, help us. He wants to help us tonight with adversity we might be encountering, some temptation that's just coming at us persistently and uh, subversively. Maybe some have learned to lean into a level of selfishness because the abundance test is just too hard. It's too hard to share. It's too hard to give your time away to others, and you want to keep it to yourself. And so when they call for, for new church planters or for new volunteers to help with this or that, there's a, there's a re- reluctance to be expendable. I'm reminded of what John Wimber used to teach us. He said that, uh, remember, God, we are small change in God's pocket, and He can spend us any way He wants to. May God give us back that sense of, ex- sense of expendability in our, in our pursuit of Him. And the tools that will help us, remember? favorable presence of God. Make that your primary focus, to enjoy His presence personally every day, every week. Uh, during COVID, we've, we've seen a dynamic come into a number of churches. Um, praise God, uh, we've, I think we're beating it, but there's still some pockets where this exists, where people have become so attracted to uh, the isolation, they found themselves in a little cocoon, and they've started despising the larger gathering. And uh, got caught up with uh, the deceptions of fake news and all kinds of things, and as a result have caused their fellowship and their worship to be compromised. So let's be, let's be pers- uh, persistent in our, in our pursuit of the favorable presence of God, and then persistent also in our gift usage and the pursuit of the gift of the Holy Spirit as He wants to work in us and, and through us. Um, and, and then finally, let's commit, like Joseph, to processing profoundly, deeply, as like layers of the onion, one layer after another throughout the years of our lives until we become in, increasingly like Jesus. Like we, till we can say like Joseph said at the end in Genesis 50, what you intended, and let me tell you, he said this after Pharaoh had died and his brothers thought, well, now that Pharaoh has passed, now Joseph's really going to come down on us. And he called his brother and said, no, no, you don't understand what you intended for evil. God purpose for good. And he'd come to a place of, of deep forgiveness. And uh, I, um, I want to I close with just telling you about a story of a, a friend of mine who uh, had two children, age uh, 19 and 18, a son and a daughter. Um, 
and uh, they were walking home from a Christian celebration on New Year's Eve uh, at the middle of the night. They were walking home across a field, and uh, they were accosted, and they were murdered. Uh, it was such a tragic thing. Yeah, they were just coming from doing a wonderful thing, enjoying the presence of God in fellowship and worship, and they were murdered. Uh, it was tragic, very tragic. But the most remarkable thing, within a few hours, this friend of mine who is actually a, he's actually a, a minister in another church, he, uh, he went public and even went to the press about it and said, I want, I want you to know that I forgive the perpetrators. And that created such a stir among so many people. They said, that's impossible. It's not right. You shouldn't offer them forgiveness so cheaply. Uh, you should take vengeance. You should make them sweat it out a bit. Uh, there, there should be more waiting before you forgive. Um, and I spoke to him about it. I said, tell me. His name was Laurie. I said, Laurie, what is really happening for you? He said, you know, I didn't forgive them because they deserved it. I forgive them because I needed to forgive them. I didn't want, to, I didn't want them to continue the abuse and the perpetration of evil in my soul by capturing my soul in bitterness. So I took a position of forgiveness. And over the years, I will work out the emotion of it and the reality of it. I'm committed to that. I made that commitment now. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That's what I'm talking about, processing. Inviting the Lord into the depths, the recesses of our souls. Those places where we've, we've got levels of pain and confusion that others don't easily access or know about and we often feel very alone but in that place as we seek the Lord and we find help from others who can help us find words and I've been so grateful ongoingly over my life that in a certain season when I had some people who drew alongside me and helped me work through some deep things in my own life that helped me to, to transform from what I was and and the orientation of prior generations and give my, my family a, a whole new legacy and myself an easier life. Because quite frankly, when we when we bad news, we're not only hard for the people around us, we, we're hard on ourselves. Eh? And the Lord wants us to know that as we take up the, the tool of process, of processing our pain, processing our, our unforgiveness, processing our bitterness, processing our fears, our anxieties, that burnout will recede from us. And we'll find ourselves being energized in a resilience that becomes quite remarkable. And a testimony of a faithfulness of God. Hey? Does that make sense to anybody in this house? Amen. What I'd like us to do, as we just wrap this up here, um, I invited some of the team that are with me. Gavin and Karen, you guys want to come up? And if Colleen would like to. Hannah, would you like guys like to come? I don't know if the other guys have run off if they... If you'd like to just come and join me here, we're going to just wait on the Lord for any words that He might have. Um, and uh, we'll see what He might do here tonight. Um, and we'll have a time of, of uh, sharing, ministry in the Spirit.